this book different, absolutely unique, and distinguishes it and elevates it above all other religious writings. There's one thing, Jesus, yes, prophecy, and Jesus is actually the embodiment of prophecy, because this is actually what the Word of God is about. From Genesis to Revelation, it's all about Jesus. If you've got your Bibles, turn to Isaiah chapter 46. anything from 
pertain to what is going to happen in the future. This is the only book that reveals God's plan and purpose for humanity that was fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. So Galatians 4 verse 8 tells us, But when the time had fully come, and by that, in God's timetable, when the exact cultural, religious, political conditions were in place for God to fulfill His perfect plan, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law that we might receive the full rights of sons. So let's have a look at, uh, at some of the prophecies relating to Jesus' first coming. Isaiah 7 verse 14 predicted that the Lord Himself would be the sign. The virgin shall conceive, bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, meaning God is with us. And this prophecy was literally fulfilled with the virgin birth. We can read about that in Matthew chapter 1, verse 22 to 23. Jeremiah 31, verse 15, predicted that Rachel will weep for her children because they are no more. And this prophecy was fulfilled literally when King Herod slew all the children that were two years of age and under in Bethlehem. Hosea 11 verse 1 predicted that God would call his son out of Egypt. And this prophecy was literally fulfilled when Joseph and Mary returned from Egypt and went to Nazareth. We can read that in Matthew 2 verses 15. Isaiah 40 verse 3 predicted that a voice would cry in the wilderness, and that in the desert a highway would be made straight for God. And this prophecy was fulfilled literally by the ministry of John the Baptist, who was the forerunner of Jesus. Isaiah 61 verse 1 predicted that the Spirit of the Lord would rest upon the Messiah. And this prophecy was fulfilled literally when the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus at his baptism by John. And if we go to Luke chapter 4, I want to read that passage. Luke chapter 4, verse 18. In this particular passage, Jesus had come to Nazareth, the 
It had been after his baptism in the, in the Jordan and he'd gone into the wilderness where he'd been led by the Spirit of God to be tested by the devil for 40 days. And after that he came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. And it's interesting that the scripture says here, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And he was given or handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And he opened the book and he found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And then he closed the book, gave it to the attendant, sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were on him. And then Jesus said this, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. What a statement. What he was saying, the one that was prophesied about in the scriptures. Yeah, that's me. I'm sitting there. And what did they do? They actually got upset and angry. You know this guy. This is Joseph's and Mary's son. What is he now actually planning to be? And they actually took him and they wanted to throw him over the edge of a cliff. Nazareth actually is a town that sits on um, a hill. If you stand in the valley of Megiddo, where the scripture talks about the battle of Armageddon is going to take place, you can actually stand in that valley, look up onto the mountains, and you can see Nazareth at the top. And they wanted to take Jesus and throw him off the cliff, but they were not able to do that, and he passed through them and went on his way, because it wasn't his time yet. God's plan for Jesus was to go to the cross, to die for us, and to pay the penalty of our sin. But there's something very interesting about that passage of Scripture. Jesus read from Isaiah 61, but he stopped right in the middle of verse 2. He didn't complete it. Have you ever noticed that? If you go and you read Isaiah chapter 61, okay, Jesus finished it to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, but he leaves something out that's in verse 2. The day of vengeance of our God, because that refers to his second coming, not his first coming. His first coming, he came to preach the gospel to the world, to heal the broken hearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty all who are oppressed. When Jesus comes back the second time, the day of vengeance of our God is when he comes back to judge 
he comes back as judge and ruler and to set up his kingdom on this earth for a thousand years. And this was the complex advent of Messiah that the Jewish people didn't understand. That Jesus had to come and die the first time, but he would come back a second time. They still looking for the Messiah to come a first time, but he's already come and he is coming back again. Zechariah 9 verse 9 predicted that the king of Israel would enter Jerusalem riding on a donkey. And this prophecy was fulfilled literally when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey before his crucifixion. Zechariah 11 verse 13 predicted that Israel was sold on the Messiah for 30 pieces of silver. And this prophecy was fulfilled literally when um, Judas Iscariot delivered Jesus into the hands of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, for 30 pieces of silver. Isaiah 53 verse 5 predicted that the righteous servant of the Lord would be wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. And this prophecy was fulfilled when Jesus died on the cross for us. Isaiah 53 12 predicted that he would be numbered with the transgressors, and this prophecy was fulfilled literally when Jesus was crucified with them, the robbers, two robbers, one on each side of him. Psalm 22 verse 18 predicted that they would divide his garments among them, that they would cast lots for his clothing, and this prophecy was fulfilled literally when the Roman soldiers divided the clothes of Jesus by casting lots. That's Matthew 27 verse 35. And Psalm 69 predicted that the martyr would receive gall and vinegar for his thirst. And that's what they gave Jesus to drink when he was on the cross. Isaiah 53 verse 9 predicted that the servant of the Lord would be rich in his death and this prophecy was fulfilled when Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man, placed Jesus' body in his own tomb. Now we've looked at about 12 prophecies there. There's a lot more pertaining to the first coming of Jesus. Mathematicians will tell you the odds of just one prophecy being fulfilled. If you have to take three prophecies, and we've looked at twelve, the odds of that being fulfilled are like almost impossible to calculate. Mathematicians use, they talk about 10 to the power of 9 and 10 to the power of 20, and you know, when they talk about figures like that, it's difficult for us to actually comprehend the odds of just three prophecies being fulfilled. But I was reading an article where one mathematician explained it like this. Uh, he said, if you had to take the silver coin, and he used the state of Texas as an example. Now, Texas is about the size of South Africa. So let's use 
so that we can then our contest. If you had to take five rand coins and spread them right across the country, so you lay five rand coins across Springs, Gauteng, all over the country, and amongst those coins, put three golden coins. What are the odds of you finding those three golden coins in one day? That's the odds of just three prophecies being fulfilled. What mathematicians have worked, we've looked at 12. Okay. There's probably, from what I've read, more than 300 prophecies related to the coming of the Messiah. Only God could have put that He's the only one who knows the end from the beginning. Yeah? Amazing. That's why Peter said, he said, we have a sure word of prophecy because no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation that holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And the Old Testament, everything that's there was pointing to when the Messiah would come. And God is the only one. That's one of the miraculous signs that this is the Word of God. God is the only one who is omniscient, who knows all things. He knows everything. He's the only one that could have put this together. There's so much more that we could say about this, and I'm just going over this very briefly, uh, just for the sake of time. Matthew chapter 2. We have to turn there. I'm going to read Matthew chapter 2 from verses 1 to 6. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. The Bible doesn't say three wise men, it just says wise men. The notion for three wise men actually came because there were three gifts, gold, myrrh, and frankincense. And these wise men came from uh, Persia. Uh, they were Magi, probably astrologers, but they knew the Hebrew scriptures probably from the time that the Jewish people and Daniel had been in Babylon and in, in Persia. They knew and understood the scriptures and when they saw the sign in the heavens, they actually journeyed, possibly as long as 18 months or a couple of months, in search of the Messiah. Because the scripture says here, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. Now look what the next verse says. Okay? 
when Herod the king heard this, he wasn't excited, he wasn't joyful, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, is what the scripture says. And verse 4 says, And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes and people together, he inquired from them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, that you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Now, when we read this, and we look at this passage, there was an amazing apathy amongst the religious, the Jewish religious leaders to the arrival of the Messiah. They knew the scriptures, but they were not living in anticipation of the Saviour coming to the earth. And we read here that Herod actually called them and summoned them. It says he summoned all the religious advisors and he wants to know from them, well, where, according to the scriptures, is the Messiah going to be born? They said to him, in Bethlehem, so they knew, they knew the scriptures. And Bethlehem, and I've shared this before, Beth in Hebrew means house, Bethlehem means bread, house of bread, the bread of life. John talks about Jesus being the bread of life, was born in the house of bread, Bethlehem. <laughs> So the sad thing is, there's no record in scripture of any of the Jewish leaders going to seek out Jesus in his birthplace in Bethlehem. No record at all. Who went? The shepherds who witnessed the host of angels in the heavenlies, proclaiming the birth of Jesus, so they went. They saw Jesus, and the scripture says that they went and proclaimed to everyone what they had seen. And the Magi, who were Gentiles, who came from Persia to witness the birth of Jesus, but not one of the Jewish religious leaders went to seek out Jesus. But what did Herod do? Immediately he sought to kill him. And what makes this even more heinous, where Herod puts all the uh, children to death, two years and younger, which was one of the prophecies that we read about, what actually made that more heinous was that he knew that this was God's anointed one. And yet he still wanted to put him to death. But as we saw from the scriptures, the angel spoke to Joseph, and one of the prophecies was that 
God called his son out of Egypt, and they fled to Egypt to actually escape what Herod was going to do. And after Herod passed away, Joseph and Mary then went to, to live in Nazareth. So, you often hear the phrase, history repeats itself. What we see in scripture is that the shepherds who the Jewish leaders would probably have looked down upon went to seek out Jesus. But the teachers of God's word were unmoved and uninterested in the greatest event in Jewish history, the greatest event in the history of the world. God becoming a man. And the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. John 1 verse 14. Let's just go there quickly. Verse 14, and the word became flesh, dwelt amongst us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus was uncreated, he's always been eternal, he's always existed. So when it says the word became flesh, emphasizes their Christ taking on humanity. And what is incredibly profound about this okay, is that the infinite, God who is infinite, now became finite. The eternal now confined himself to space and time. The invisible became visible. And the one who is supernatural reduced himself to the natural. And where it says, dwelt amongst us, the, um, the meaning there, dwelt amongst us, is like to pitch a tent or to live in a tent. Paul describes our bodies as being this tent that we, that we live in. And the term here that John had in mind refers to the Old Testament tabernacle where Israel, um, the Israelis constructed the uh, tent, the tabernacle in the wilderness, and it was known as the tabernacle of meeting or the tabernacle of witness. And it was where Moses actually spoke to the Lord face to face, as the scripture says in Exodus, as a man speaks with his friend. So, once they had built that tabernacle, the Shekinah glory, the presence of God, dwelt there. But here we see when the Word became flesh and we beheld his glory, People, when they looked at Jesus, his glory was actually veiled. The Shekinah glory of God indwelt the Word who had become flesh. 
And we had glimpses of it in the New Testament, uh, like on the Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus was transfigured and suddenly his whole appearance changed and he became bright. The glory of God just shone around him. So we have glimpses of that um, in the New Testament. But so much of that, of his deity, was veiled in his human flesh. And this, what happened with God becoming a man, with him being born in Bethlehem, it was a total non-event for the Jewish religious leaders. That the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. And we know right to the Scriptures when you read the Gospels, they continually sought to put him to death. And that's ultimately what happened. God actually needed the blindness of the Jewish people so that they would actually crucify the Messiah, that he would become the Lamb of God who was slain from the foundation of the, of the world. Now, is there a lesson in the church for us today? Because we often hear the phrase, as I said, as history repeats itself. Because the next great event for the church is the coming of the Lord Jesus for his people. And Jesus will come in the clouds to call his people home to his father's house. The sad thing today, and I read an article this week that actually quite shocked me, that in a lot of the theological colleges and seminaries in Australia and in the States that actually taken eschatology out of the syllabus. They don't teach about the rapture and the second coming, which is sad. Because Jesus said that he would come back. Paul wrote about it. It's the hope of the church. And for us today, we've got the benefit of both the Old and the New Testament scriptures. And what we've seen today the prophecies that were fulfilled concerning his first coming, God will fulfill all prophecies concerning the return of Jesus in the rapture of the church and the second coming when Jesus returns to this earth. And we're going to finish, I'm going to read Titus chapter 2. Titus is a book that is just after Timothy. It's a very short book. It's got three short chapters in it. Titus chapter 2 verse 11. Paul writes this, is for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. And when he talks about for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, he's not talking about the attribute of grace, he's actually talking about Jesus himself. That Jesus was God's gracious gift to fallen mankind. Jesus was the only one that was born for the purpose of actually dying. That was his whole focus and ministry was set towards going to the cross to die for us 
that we might live life and have life in abundance. And Paul goes on to say this, is for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, particularly in the present wicked, godless age that we are living now. That we should deny ungodliness and worldliness, we should live soberly, righteously and godly in the present age. And this is the encouragement, looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. That's the blessed hope that we have. Jesus came the first time, coming back the second time. So here, at this time of the year, we remember God's gracious gift to fallen mankind. And that gift to us, it's available to all, that the scripture says it's only those who believe in Him, put their faith and trust in Him, acknowledge Him as Lord, repent, commit their lives to Him and are regenerated by the Spirit of God and have our sins forgiven because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. It's not by the words that we are saved, it's through faith in Jesus Christ. Let's just close our eyes.